Hello and welcome to the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Now, the UK, like many other developed countries, faces an ageing population. By 2050, you expect there to be 25% more pensioners than there are today. Now, this, of course, is partly very good news. We're living longer. But it does present clear challenges for current and future governments. How should we support people in retirement? How should the state pension rise over time? And most importantly, how will we pay for it all? Recently, we at the IFS launched a report looking at the future of the state pension as part of our much bigger pensions review in partnership with the Aberdeen Financial Fairness Trust. So today, to help us at least try to answer some of these difficult questions, we're joined by Jonathan Cribb, who's Associate Director here at the IFS and Head of Savings, Retirement and Ageing, and Baroness Ros Altman, a life peer, pensions expert and former pensions minister. We couldn't find anyone better to help us answer these questions. So I think we're all broadly aware of what the state pension is. It's something that goes to most, if not all of us, when we hit pension age, which currently is 66. But Jonathan, perhaps you could give us a little bit more of a a background to what we mean when we talk about the state pension. Who gets it? What's it worth? And what do we know about the government's current plans? So you started by saying you, you get this from state pension age. State pension age is currently 66. That's the same for both men and women, and that's different to 15 years ago when there was a lower state pension age for women. And under current legislation, this age that you can get the state pension will continue to rise to 67 and then to 68 in the mid-2040s. Exactly what you get, what is your state pension, used to be very complicated it is now a little less complicated and it will get more simple over time. And the, the big change is really that anybody who reached state pension age from 2016 onwards is eligible to something called the new state pension. A full new state pension, which most new retirees will get in the future, is currently worth about £204 per week. I, I don't want to go into too much technical detail, but it's fair to say people who reached state pension age before 2016 do face a slightly different system with a kind of lower base amount, but maybe with a top up for having worked and and contributed at particular points of their lives. But going forward, it will become more and more the case that new retirees will get this kind of single full new state pension amount. The last thing just to say is how does this go up? It goes up currently in line with a rule called the triple lock. And that's basically the highest of earnings growth, inflation, and two and a half percent. And what that has done is it pushes up the value of the new state pension relative to both prices and relative to people's earnings. So most of us at 66 will get about £200 a week. If you're a couple, you both get that £200 a week. Looking forward, that's relatively simple. We used to have something, and a lot of people in retirement at the moment have something called the state earnings-related pension or the state second pension, which can add to that. But the, the new policy since 2016 has been effectively to phase that out and move to this relatively simple, but not desperately generous, I think it's fair to say, £200 a week or so for nearly everyone. And we'll come back to that nearly everyone who hits state pension age in a moment. Ros, did you want to add anything to Jonathan's description there? Actually, the the calculation of everybody's state pension typically is so fiendishly complicated. There is virtually nobody who could work out for themselves what 
they will be entitled to if they have participation in the old state pension system, the pre-2016 versions, because there were lots of bits to the state pension. And there's a lot of misunderstanding of it, which isn't helpful. However, uh, as Jonathan says, if you wind forward 20 or 30 years, you will have more and more people who will have this new state pension, which is a flat rate basic amount. It's never meant to be a, a generous pension. The whole idea is that the state pension provides you a basic minimum uh, and that's it. Any extra that you want for your retirement, you need to provide for yourself or your employer needs to help you provide it. And that is what the UK national insurance system was always meant to be. For a while, there was an earnings related element to it, which has basically added all the complications that we've seen, which have made it so difficult to work out what you're entitled to. But we are now no longer in a situation where the state offers you an earnings-related pension. That will come from your own savings and from anything that your employer helps you with. And I think that's a really important point about the, the, the state pension. It is not intended to be, for the large majority of people, the full income that they're going to live on through their retirement. It's it's a sort of basis on which to build. It avoids the need for mass means testing of pensioners, which is what you'd have if you didn't have um, a, a basic pension like that. But it also avoids, in a sense, the state paying extra money to people who have earned more during their life. Now, we're not going to talk in detail today about the private pension system, which sits on top of this. That's a much more complicated set of issues, a fast-changing set of issues with a whole series of problems of its own. But that's a really crucial point about the state pension, that £200 a week is the basis on which most people build. It's not a very large amount, Jonathan, but actually, even so for most pensioners, it's still quite an important part of their income. Even for pensioners on above-average income, this is still not unimportant to them. So retired people in their late 60s, most of whom have at least been somewhat affected by this new state pension system, even for the kind of richest 20%, it's roughly a quarter of their income. It's clearly most important in the middle of the distribution and to the bottom where some people get some top ups in a sense of mean tested benefits as well. So we've talked a bit about, I've said a few times, this is available to nearly everyone who hits state pension age. And it's nearly a pension which is available to you if you've lived in the UK for long enough, but not quite. If you go back far enough, what you've got really did depend on your national insurance contributions, which Ros referred to earlier, which meant actually that the majority of women didn't get a full state pension because they hadn't spent long enough in work. We've now got all sorts of ways in which we ensure that most people get this. If you spent time out of work looking after children, if you spent time unemployed, if you spent time sick and disabled, and so on, you get credits towards it. So you get the full 35 years of contributions, uh, so-called, that you're supposed to get. But Ros, how much of an effect does that still have, that sort of that complication whereby not quite everyone gets it. I mean, th that still has a significant impact, actually, because don't forget, we may have a new system for people who are in their early 70s and below. But anyone who is above that age, and we're talking millions of citizens in this country, 
was under the old system. And many of those will be women who didn't necessarily build up any private pension because in the days before auto enrollment as well, you didn't necessarily have any workplace pension at all. Very often, we have a significant cohort of people. As I say, the majority would be women. And they are not able to participate in the same way in the state pension system. However, the latest credits that have been added to the state pension system to make sure that people who aren't necessarily working in the wage labour market, but are still contributing to the economy, perhaps in other ways, or are not well enough to work, or as you say, have become unemployed for a while, they can also be included. But I have to say that there is a significant concern, in my view, the idea that 35 years is any kind of full working life. I feel that the idea that you've built up a full pension record by the time you've got a 35-year national insurance history is paying out the full pension to people who might otherwise keep contributing to national insurance and helping with the funding of the costs of the system, especially those who are still younger. The reason it was cut from the original 44-ish years for men and around 40, 39 years for women was to try and get more women into the system in full. But I think Given where we are now, it's worth considering if one is looking at cost measures, that would be another metric for consideration when we're talking about the costs of paying a full state pension to more and more people in our ageing population. Yeah, interesting. So you, you'd like people to have a longer contribution record. I mean, one of the things, Jonathan, we considered was making this not actually dependent on any kind of contribution record, but really trying to sweep all of that away, but just on the length of time that you lived in the UK, which it is very close to at the moment. But there are some groups who, either by uh, accident or by design, don't qualify. The, the, the idle rich, for example, don't qualify if they don't have any of those qualifications. But actually also women staying at home looking after children after the age of 12. So if you're deciding not to work because you've got children over the age of 12, then you don't get this. And also a group of part-time workers who are not fully in the national insurance system, but not getting credits because they're unemployed. So that's a particularly strange there, there are other loopholes as well. There, there, there are other gaps that typically it's women who fall through, which do reduce their ability to accrue credits towards the national insurance system. The system would require you to have a full year if you've only been caring for children for part of a year or if you've only been working for part of a year you don't necessarily get credit for that whole year. If you earn less than the minimum national insurance level, you also don't get any credit. You can get a credit if you earn a little bit more than that and still below the actual threshold, but there's a basic level, which if you fall below, you don't pay national insurance, but you don't get any credits either, even though you may be working. There are there are real quirks that I would be keen to see ironed out. And in addition to that, one of the potential reforms that I was particularly keen on before we got the new state pension was what 
one could call a citizen's pension or a resident's pension, perhaps paid from age 75 automatically to anyone who'd lived in the country for the last however many years. And that would sweep away so much of the complexities in the calculations and also the inequalities that exist even within this new system. Just to pick up on both of those, we in our report have spoken, I think, quite warmly about the idea of, you can call it what you want, universalisation or citizens' pension, more towards you get a, a year's credit if you live in the UK for a year broadly, and then you add that up. And we seem to have been staggering our way towards it. I think there are is a good case for moving further. When we've been talking to stakeholders about this pushback, we've got about actually, is the state able to implement something like this? Do we know who is in the country and when? And broadly, the answer seems to be not really. And if the state and government has a better record of who lives here, I think there's an even stronger case to move that way. And again, to pick up on your point about the number of years you need to be here or contribute in some sense to get a full pension, the more universal the eligibility, the stronger the case of pushing up the number of years. is. And then if it's your whole adult life, then you get a whole state pension, but you don't, you can't slip through to the net, in a sense, on if you just earn under a little threshold or something like that. The, the other policy that one could add on to that would be to allow people to buy extra years but at a realistic cost. I think the current cost of buying years is pretty much uneconomic for the taxpayer, but good value for individuals. But if you hadn't got your full, whatever it's going to be, 45 years, you are able to top that up by purchasing additional years for your state pension, a bit like some kind of state annuity, which is really what the state pension mimics, if you like. But I think that the report that you've done is really useful and really helpful in setting out some of the issues and the complexities uh, and the cost considerations that policymakers need to be looking at. And I hope that it can form part of this discussion, a much wider discussion, which I believe is absolutely essential as we go forward, which is a proper cross-party national review of all aspects of pensioner support so that we can work out properly what money is being spent on pensioners, how best they should be and can be supported in future without the sort of simplistic notion that has always pervaded for the last few decades, which is if you want to save money, you just push up the age at which you can start getting your state pension. I think that has created its own problems and the IFS has shown excellent analysis about the poverty that it's created for some of those who haven't quite reached the minimum age as it keeps rising uh, and are not well enough to work but can't get any of their state pension early either. I think that's really that's really important. Uh, it's, it's a group who are, I think, not anywhere near enough talked about in the press or in policy, which are people uh, in their 60s, maybe now in their mid-60s, who are not in work, can't work, and the benefit levels for those people are much, much lower than they are once you hit state pension age. And that gap has grown dramatically over the last 25 years 
Chisel says pension benefits have risen and benefits for people under state pension age have at best stayed completely flat. And Jonathan, of course, you've done a lot of this work on the impact of increasing state pension age. It does get quite a lot of people, additional people into work as you increase that pension age, but it does leave some people high and dry, stranded for another year or two, or in the case of women in their 60s, another six years on very low levels of income. And one of the themes, actually, I think, of the report on state pensions that we've just published is that if you do want to reduce the amount that we're spending on state pensions, pensions, increasing the state pension age, or certainly relying only on increasing the state pension age is something which is actually quite um, regressive in the sense that it hits poorer people who don't live as long as richer people harder than richer people. And Jonathan, I think that's one of the, I think, most interesting or one of the many interesting aspects of that report on state pensions. I think it's better to say most people don't think of it like this. People think about the fact that state pensions are just a bigger fraction of income for poorer people. But the fact about how long you live really does make a difference. And this isn't a kind of diatribe against raising the state pension age. There's a kind of there's a coherent reason why most people are living longer, that, that at some point the state pension age should rise along with that. But if it's the only way you're going to control the cost of the system, then it really does have this reg- regressive impact on poor people who live less long, because if you have a five-year retirement and you lose one of those years, in a sense, by uh, the state pension aid going up by a year, that's a much bigger loss than if you have a 15-year retirement. Yeah, and indeed, of course, hopefully most people have longer retirements than than, than that. It's one thing that I think people need to account for is I think the life expectancy at 66, the point at which state pension becomes available, is, is around 20 years, am I right? The numbers off the top of my head is for future generations, people born in the 80s, are expected to have about 17 years for men and, and 20 years for women. I don't have yeah. the, the numbers right now, yeah. but, you're yeah. right. but the, the, the 5 and 15 is more just a kind of yeah. illustration. Yeah. Yeah. The significant periods of time. And of course, one of the things we'll come on to in a different podcast, I hope, the issues around private provision. But as we've moved so much towards individual private provision, planning your retirement when you don't know how long you're going to live is incredibly difficult. If you've got a certain amount of money in a pensions pot and a quarter of men might live only 10 years or so after pension age and a quarter might live 25 years over pension age, how do you? How can you possibly plan on that basis? And I think that's one of the places where the state pension is so very important. So, Ros, you mentioned the need for a pensions review, which is to some extent what we're doing. You were pensions minister something like eight years ago now. How have things changed since then? What do you think are the big challenges for the government in pension policy over the coming period? I, I think we've touched on the challenges, and so does your report in, in many ways. The thing that, that strikes me so much as we have had more and more statistics over the last few years, is the vast differential in healthy life expectancy across the country which exists. The the least healthy 10% of the population are only healthy into their early 50s. About half of the population anyway are only healthy until their early 60s. What you've done is you've looked at average life expectancies not you, sorry, the government or policy commentators, what is generally done is that one 
considers the average life expectancy and the better off or best off, most healthy, 10% of the population are actually staying healthy now until their early 70s. So there's this nearly 20-year gap in healthy life expectancy. And many of the people making policy probably know predominantly more people who are in the uh, healthy to early 70s camp than in the not well enough in their early 50s camp. And everybody thinks average life expectancy is going up so we can increase the starting age for the state pension. And that's where I feel that we haven't focused sufficiently. As Jonathan was describing, and as you were saying, there is this cohort of people, and this is millions of people, who are actually not well enough to work into their mid-60s or beyond their mid-60s. Many of them will have 45 or even 50 years on their national insurance record, but cannot receive a penny of state pension if the pension age increases. There is no flexibility for those who really need some state pension sooner. Now, obviously, it's not easy to uh, adjudicate on who really needs it and who might just fancy having some early state pension. And there's an issue of, of maybe paying reduced amounts early. But the differential between the means-tested state pension that you can get called pension credit, which tops you up to just around the level of the new state pension, and the means-tested help that you might get on universal credit, say, is so vast that I think we are falling into a potential trap which will just consign a lot more of our citizens to an impoverished older age in the few years before they can get a state pension, and for which they only will stay alive for a very few years thereafter, if they do survive to that age. Uh, So I, I think there's a social inequality that we do need to look at when we're considering this state pension, rather than just comforting ourselves that the average life expectancy is going up. There's a lot there. And I think one of the things that Jonathan in in other work that you've recently published, this question of people in ill health retiring early, I think is very important to ridiculously oversimplify your work. There are two groups who retire earlier. And I think it plays back again to what Ros was saying about who the politicians are in touch with. There is a group of well-off people who have got plenty of money who can retire in their early 60s because they've maybe they've inherited, maybe they've saved a lot of money, uh, maybe they've got a nice occupational pension. And so if you're really quite well off, you can retire relatively early. But there's another group who are the least well off, um, who are often very sick and can't work in their early to mid 60s. And they're subsisting really on these very ungenerous benefits. And I think that's, that, that is an important part of what we need to discuss, which is a bit different from pension policy, because we, I don't think anyone thinks that everyone should be getting a pension in their early 60s. But it is something we need to take account of. We've referred to the report quite a lot. And I think one of the things that's most striking about what we've got to say here uh, is is, is a four-point guarantee that we think should be offered for the state pension. Part of that guarantee is some really quite straightforward stuff. We'll come on to the details of it in a minute. But one of the things I think both you and I found quite shocking was the extent to which there is very little trust in the future of the state pension. We did some surveys and found lots and lots of young people really didn't think there'd be a state pension when they hit hit their 60s or early 70s. 
and didn't trust the government to be raising it even in line with prices, even though it goes up more quickly than that at the moment. So, Jonathan, perhaps you could say a little bit about the background to that and what the four-point guarantee is that we are calling for. Yeah, so our report looks in detail at the state pension system, identifies a number of challenges, the kind of mixture of confusion and pessimism around the future of the state pension, we think is one of those key challenges, actually, is about a third of people say that they don't think the state pension is going to exist in 30 years' time, presumably due to the cost of provision to larger cohort of older people, or just generally scepticism about the kinds of promises, in a sense, made by government. And despite the fact, as you say, that the state pensions risen in line with prices, at least in line with prices since 1975, four in 10 people don't think it will do so in the next 10 years. So even though current policy says that it will, that doesn't kind of feed through to people. We do think in broad terms that the state pension system probably needs some evolution, not a revolution. And we think that there's some of the simplicity uh, of, an, of the new state pension system and most people getting a similar amount and that roughly similar amount, roughly keeping most people out of income poverty, that this is a, is a good thing. But we do think that there are a number of improvements in this kind of four-point pension guarantee that we suggest <laughs> yep. as, a, as a way forward. So, Tell us yeah. what that four-point yeah. guarantee is. Okay, so the first thing is in, that we think that the government, rather than what we've got now, which is relying on the, the triple lock, which I set out, uh, which kind of increases the value of the state pension in a sort of haphazard way, we think that the government should have a target for how high the state pension should be. That's similar to what the government has done with the minimum wage, where they have, have a target for it, and they should legislate a path towards reaching that target. Once you're at that target, we think that the state pension in the long run should rise in line with average earnings, so keep up with rising living standards, and in a sense, make sure that pensioners benefit from growth of the, of the economy and greater prosperity. The second point of that guarantee would be that from one year to the next, the state pension would always rise at least in line with prices. Now, taking those two points together, the important thing here is that it isn't like the triple lock where you can get a ratchet up. If there's falls in earnings and the state pension rises in line with prices, then as earnings recover, you continue to increase the state pension in line with prices until you reach back the target. And in broad sense, that is what the Australians do. It's an Australian-style form of indexation. The third point is that we think that the state pension should not be means-tested. Basically, people, every so often, people start worrying about the, the cost of the state pension system, and they go, there, there are these rich people, they don't need a state pension. That's basically the kind of argument. And we think that's actually quite a worrying argument, because as we touched on at the beginning, even for high income people, the state pension is a really important part of their wealth uh, and their income. And secondly, in a kind of system with voluntary saving, where we have automatic enrollment, where people need to provide, in a sense, for themselves to some extent, uh, or through their employers, through private pensions, we think that it risks undermining the success of automatic enrollment if you were to meet test. The last thing is that we do see a, a role for a higher state pension age over time as life expectancy hopefully continues to increase. But we don't think it should rise by as much as life expectancy increases. And, and in a sense, that's all what 
previous governments have done everything so far. But what's different, we really think that communication is really important on the state pension age. And we should give more communication. We think people should be contacted by the government at age 50 and told what their state pension age is expected to be. And then again, their state pension should be guaranteed 10 years before they reach it in order to give people certainty about what they can expect. So in short, we're looking at guaranteeing that over time, the pension rises in line with earnings, that it rises to a particular target as a fraction of earnings, which is higher than where we are at the moment. Any year, it never goes up by less than the increase in prices, that it's never means tested. And state pension age will rise as life expectancy rises, but it will rise less quickly than life expectancy. And people will get good warning uh, of at least 10 years uh, before that happens. Ros, how does that sound to you as a set of high-level guarantees or an outline, a framework for how we ought to be dealing with the state pension going forward? If you are maintaining the current system, then I think 100% agree with the the target relative to average earnings and protecting pensions relative to average earnings over time, Uh, a a target that has often been set or suggested that that I I would consider reasonable might be 25% of average earnings, perhaps. Aren't we above that already? We are at 30% of median in terms of mean. We've basically reached 25%, actually. Which is where we were in the 1980s and where we were trying to get back to as a result of this so-called triple lock. I would argue that the triple lock has done its job. Actually, it's outlived its usefulness. In any case, legislating for an an increase in line with average earnings or indeed prices or the triple lock has been shown to be pretty meaningless because at any point in time, as happened a couple of years ago, a government can come along as long as it's got a decent majority, and just change the law and say, yeah, we know we promised that. But there is no proper protection in law for the state pension. It is actually a benefit. It is not an entitlement. It's classed as a a national insurance benefit, unlike a private pension, which has property rights attached and which you have entitlements to and which can never be reduced. This is different. In the current system, to to legislate for at least a rise in line with average earnings over time would help, but it wouldn't be the kind of guarantee one might want. But it certainly would force politicians to make very careful decisions about the state pension in future. I am not a fan of the triple lock. The the uprating of state pensions, in my view, is a bit of a mess The triple lock has been convenient political shorthand for don't worry, we're protecting your state pension. But it has not really, in my view, fulfilled the kind of social function that I would like to see being fulfilled by the kind of national insurance basic minimum support. Introducing the kind of system you're talking about makes a lot of sense to me. The other thing that one might do if you wanted to have a higher overall target relative to average earnings for a state pension, which I would be happy to see. I just think if one's talking about cost, that might be more difficult. It would be to roll all the additional state pensioner benefits into a higher state pension 
and get rid of the Christmas bonus and the winter fuel payments and, and the free this and free that that go along with hitting state pension age, which are increasingly perhaps disadvantaging those who have not yet reached this age. And put all of that into a higher pension, all of it will become taxable. So it, it, it will raise a bit of extra revenue, but it will also allow a, a higher base target level for the national insurance state pension. 100% agree that the last thing we should do is means test pensioner support. That is a guarantee in most instances that you will disincentivize at the margin the majority of people who can't be sure that they are not going to be on means testing in later life from bothering to save or build up a private pension. And as they get towards pension age, it gives them a real incentive to just spend all their money and have nothing left and fall back on means testing. I have a big question mark over continually raising the state pension age itself. As long as there is flexibility on the downside as well as the upside, at the moment, there is flexibility around state pension age. For those who are healthy and wealthy enough to wait longer, you can get a higher pension if you wait to a later age. But for those who are significantly unwell, even if they've got 45, as I say, or even 50 years worth of national insurance contributions, they cannot get a penny even at a reduced rate sooner. And I think one would have to address that if one was to design a policy that would work from a social equitable point of view around this increase in state pension age. If you allow people who genuinely cannot work to age 70 to get some money early, then having an age of 70, say, would be much more easy to justify on a social basis. We will certainly come back to this question of how we help people transition into a higher state pension age if that's where we are. I think, Jonathan, that is going to be another part of the work that we do as part of the review. Uh, I don't think we're disagreeing with Baroness Altman here, particularly given that we are going to be looking at that element separately. But we are going to have to bring this conversation to an end. State pension is endlessly fascinating. The various things to take away from today, I think, not least that this remarkable fact that the state actually doesn't know very much about us. It doesn't know who's living in the country at any point. And that makes it really quite difficult to design a straightforward state pension. There's this huge gap in benefits for people just under state pension age and just above state pension age, which creates an enormous amount of inequity. There's this huge lack of confidence in government to maintain the pension, despite decades of it at least going up in line with prices. And we really do need to get cross-party support for guarantees around this, about it going up over time in line with earnings, about having clarity about where it's going to end up, that it goes up at least in line with prices every year, that it's never going to be means-tested, that increases in state pension age will be properly communicated in good time, all of those things which have come from from that review. I commend that review to you. It is, of course, available on the IFS website. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. To see more of our work, visit www.ifs.org.uk. And to further support us, do consider becoming a member for as little as £10 a month. You can find more in the episode description. See you next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.